According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome today. Good to have you here. This is our conclusion to Volume 1, Chapter 29, Summary of the Evidence for the Bible. Did you read the chapter? Right hand, yes. Right hand, yes. Right, oh, Left hand, no. And then the, what is that? That's, okay. All right. Uh, well, we'll go through it. And then um, I failed to look to see if I had a quiz for this chapter. I don't have a quiz for every chapter. Um, so I'll double check and see if I have a quiz. But I think a mo- about two minutes ago, I talked myself out of that and said, no, we'll just give you a week off without homework. Because uh, that's what I feel like doing. So uh, we won't do the quiz on uh, on chapter 29. And actually, I was a little bit disappointed in chapter 29. I'll be honest. It just kind of seemed like a just kind of an omnibus, kind of wrap it all together, kind of repeat everything you said in the first 28 chapters. And um, did, did did you feel the same way, or kind of ambivalent? Mm-hmm. And some of the stuff was going actually back to part one, not just the bibliology stuff, but even the prolegomena stuff, like. Oh, we're going to cover this again, kind of a thing. So, anyway, I, I tried to overcome my disappointment, and, and we'll run through the, the material because there's there's some good stuff in there, and then uh, we'll wrap it up, and we'll be done with volume one. So that puts us one fourth of the way through with uh, with systematic theology, and you should be uh, congratulated for that. Then, uh, as I mentioned last week, we're going to have a break uh, from systematic theology, and so we're going to get a start on the um, next uh, topic, which is going to be dispensationalism. And uh, I mentioned that if you don't already have the uh, the book, that this is what uh, we're going to be working with starting next week. It's going to be an intro class and uh, and things there. Am I invisible again? Really? We have a frozen camera. This is amazing. Okay. Well, interesting. Well, we'll see what happens. We'll reboot the camera and see. It's starting to bother me, though. You think a three thousand dollar camera would be more uh, reliable? So, all right. Well, we're going to, uh, like I say, let's uh, let's get to it. Did I pray already? I did not pray. See, that's why I should have prayed earlier, and the camera would have been better. Or not. All right. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for truth. We thank you for the privilege and blessing that it is for us to study the Word of God and study about the Word of God. And I thank you for these equipping classes whereby um, we have brothers and sisters that are being equipped for the work of service. And that's what it's about, Father. So we thank you for this blessing. We commit it to your hands. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so for next week, uh, I do recommend, if you don't already own the book, uh, Dispensationalism by Charles Ryrie, uh, try to get the, 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 the newest edition, if you can, the 1995 edition. There's an older version, I think, that goes back to the 60s called Dispensationalism Today. Uh, but this one is, is updated with some of the progressive dispensationalism information, and, and uh, it's really it's a good text. It's available in Logos, and, and it's very it's like $10, I think, in, in Logos. So... Uh, you'll have it on your app and be able to read it wherever you have, find yourself. All right, so for today, chapter 29, pages 541 to 564, a 24-page chapter. And, and it is a summary. Okay, It is a summary. So almost everything in here 
you've already read. Almost everything in here just goes back to something from an earlier chapter and, uh, and this kind of material. And it, uh, I agree, uh, the Bible cannot be the Word of God unless there is a God. That's kind of a, well, yeah. So a prolegomena is, a, uh, uh, is, a, is what it is. If, if we don't live in a theistic universe, then why are we studying theology, right? Um, nor uh, can the Bible be supernaturally confirmed to be the Word of God unless there are special acts of God, such as miracles. So if God can interact within creation, then uh, miracles are possible and the Bible is possible. Nonetheless, uh, within this context, many lines of supporting evidence that the Bible is the Word of God. So you start with those premises. Yes, there's a God, and yes, he can act within his creation. But then we're left with, okay, well, those, those two premises hold true for Christianity, for Islam, for Mormonism, for whatever. I mean, just because there is a God and he can reveal himself, how do we know that the Christian Bible is the revelation from the, the one true God? And that's, that's a very, very question. So that's why we went through canonicity and all the elements there, what books are belong in the Bible and, and all those things. Chapter 2, science has demonstrated that there is a supernatural, superintelligent creator of the universe just as the book of Genesis declares. And yeah, everything in the Bible is consistent with um, the scientific evidence for a supernatural cause of the universe. I like what he calls here the intuitively obvious truth. And there is a place for that. That's not wrong. You know, we have deductive reasoning, inductive reasoning. We also have intuitive understandings that you then, you don't base everything on intuition, but it's not wrong to start with intuitive reasoning and then to solidify it with, other uh, evidence and uh, and material, but essentially everything that comes into existence has a cause, and and just what we intuitively understand in terms of order and design versus uh, versus chaos, right? And I think we can see the design of the universe is intuitively requires a designer. The anthropic principles. And hey, now that you know what anthropos means, right, beginning Greek students, we understand humanity, the, the, the fact that this universe is fine-tuned for humanity. Good, uh, good material there. Of course, theistic implications. I, I want to go beyond even what this text is talking about, too. Depending on your understanding of the, of the hypostatic union and the understanding of what it is that the Father begat in Proverbs chapter 8, I think the the theanthropic principle, uh, or the anthropic principle, I kind of combine those, anthropic for man, theos for God. Jesus is the God-man, the theanthropic person. And I believe it's more accurate to understand that that hypostatic union happened before his works of old. And so, yes, it was God the Son who created the universe, but it was God the Son in hypostatic union as true God and, and true man in creating the universe. So that's, uh, that's a, just a whole other development. And, and I don't know how frequently he does get to Proverbs 8 throughout the four-volume set. That would be worth looking at to see if he has his own development of Proverbs 8. And if not, then uh, we, may, uh, we may do one ourselves just beyond the, the, the textbook so that we can make sure that, that we're solid on, on what that chapter is dealing with. All right, Robert Jastrow. Get a lot of Jastrow comments throughout this chapter. Um, explaining the origin of complex life with microbiology. Fred Hoyle. And really, yeah, the genetic code of life. And 
specifically the complexity within DNA and the nature of information. For information to be encoded, it requires an encoder. It requires a mind to encode it. And this was a, a topic I'd brought up with a Russian atheist years ago in one of my trips to Ukraine, is that he was kind of a prodigy. He was a brother of one of the seminary students that was there. And, of course, the seminary student is a believer and fears God, and the, the brother was always the, the smarter brother who knew better, and uh, just a genius-level computer programmer. And so I asked him, I said, with all your experience in coding programs and all your programming you've ever done in your life, um, you know, would you ever dream of just a computer program just inventing itself and coding itself and, and writing itself? You know, doesn't every encoder need a, doesn't every code need an encoder? And so that, that really bothered him. And, and then he came back the next day and said, that, that really bothered me what you were telling me yesterday. And then, you know, so two days in a row he's, he wants to talk about it. And I don't know, for all, I never saw him again. So I just pray and trust that maybe, maybe he's a believer by now. Who knows? So, uh, certainly pray that that's the case. The um, spe specified complexity of a one-celled animal is equal to 30 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica. I don't have any way to know if that's true or not, but it sounds impressive, so I like it. Um, and that's just a one-celled animal. Can you imagine? I think you and I have at least more than one cell, right? So that's, uh, that's pretty impressive. Astronomer Carl Sagan, and uh, he knows better now. He went to be with the Lord, or, or maybe, hopefully, maybe he didn't go to be with the Lord, but he departed this mortal life in 1986. Michael Behe, boy, I read this years ago. Darwin's Black Box, great book. And uh, a lot of the quotes come out of that. Even with Darwin's admission, if it could be demonstrated that in any complex organ uh, existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Okay? My theory would absolutely break down. And that's, that's useful. Also, it's useful to know when you're reading, remember OOS, Origin of the Species? Uh, when you're reading, this is from the sixth edition. And what's really neat, with some of the stuff that's so recent, it's nice that we, we can kind of compare edition versus edition. And, and find the quotes in the earlier editions that were changed, and then find some of the later admissions, things like that. We can do the same thing, by the way, with the Book of Mormon. As new as it is, as recent as it is, with all the editions that it's gone through, and it's just so self-evidently obvious that uh, it can't possibly have been God-breathed and inspired. Everything we know about bibliology and inspiration and preservation and so forth, um, the Book of Mormon just shows that, uh, that they have none of that. Anyway... Uh, I will accept Darwin's testimony and say, yes, your theory absolutely breaks down and we're done with it. Okay? Thank you for uh, admitting that. Richard Dawkins, in his abbreviation, BW, which is, I forget, this is where it's useful. Go ahead, Control-Shift-N, open up a second copy of the resource you're looking at, and then put this down under Sources, and then you can keep it up side by side, because... It just really bugs me the way he references these books. So there's Dawkins, Richard uh, B.W., the blind watchmaker. That's what it is. All right. And so now he's trying to change the rules, and Dawkins says, "Oh no, well, obviously there have to be some places where it's super fast." Okay. 
Evolution is very possibly not, in actual fact, always gradual. It must be gradual when it is being used to explain the coming into existence of complicated, apparently designed objects like eyes. For if it's not gradual in these cases, it ceases to have any explanatory power at all. Without gradualness in these cases, we're back to miracle, which is a synonym for the total absence of a naturalistic explanation. And that's a, that's a telling admission on his part, too. So, yeah, if you're abandoning the natural uniformitarian worldview just for the things you can't describe, then uh, why are you even still sticking with it? Here's DBB, Darwin's Black Box. More quotes from Behe. All right. Advanced scientific knowledge in the Bible. I thought this one had more questions than anything else. Um, some of the statements that were made, I'm sure, have their critics and have their debaters. Um, but the exact order of events known by modern science. Okay, tell me now. Um, so yeah, the author of Genesis declared that the universe came into being out of nothing by an act of a theistic God in the exact order that modern science discovered a millennium and a half later. Okay, tell me more. So the earth came, the universe came first, then the earth, then the land and sea. After this came life in the sea, then land animals, finally, last of all, human beings. And I'm not following where he says that science came up with that same order a millennium and a half later. This too supports the view that the author of Genesis had access to some intelligence as to how the Creator made the universe. Did anybody else have that same question I had? I'm like, show me what you're talking about here. What is this um, modern science discovered, the exact order that modern science discovered a millennium and a half later? And I have a... Uh, I have a question about that. I will even mark it with my question mark, if I can. I'm pretty, there it is. All right. That's right, all I have to do is hit Q, and the question mark will appear. Okay, so yeah. That, I thought, was a weakness in this chapter, and it's not the only time either. Okay, um, Everything reproduces after its kind. All right. So, yeah. Um, and, and understanding that kind is referring to uh, something kind of in between kingdom and order. or uh, It's certainly not at the genus and species level, because there's interbreeding that's possible within those degrees. Anyway, here's a quote from Stephen Jay Gould. Everything replicating after its kind. There is no evidence of any sort in the fossil record or anywhere. Repeated observations in fossil record demonstrates that each type of life produces its own kind. <laughs> the hopeful monster views. Yeah, Something other than a chicken laid an egg, like possibly a reptile or something, laid an egg and then a chicken hatched from it. So that, you know, you have a, you have a creature that came as a different kind from what procreated it. And that's not how procreation works. And the fossil record is, is pretty biblical. Human bodies were made from the earth. Okay, I get this. The Bible says, dust we are, to dust we shall return. In fact, that showed up in a funeral I did yesterday. 
Uh, we are dust. We are carbon-based life forms, if you prefer that kind of language. The Bible says we come from the dust. The Quran says we come from a blood clot. That's interesting. All right. Yeah. But the Bible says the Lord God formed man from dust and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of lives, and the man became a living being. Man became a living soul. We do return to the dust, Ecclesiastes 12. Modern science confirms the biblical record showing that in addition to being largely water, the human body is made of the very same elements found in the earth. Well, there you go. Rainwater returns to its source. Okay, the water cycle. If uh, you're familiar with that. Evaporation, condensation, precipitation. Some folks kind of view this out of the text from Ecclesiastes 1.7. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. And that seems to be a pre-scientific way of expressing what we would understand today scientifically as the water cycle. Before it rained in the Garden of Eden, the streams came up from the earth, watered the whole surface of the ground. You have mist that would arise from the earth before the first rain. The earth is round and hangs in space. Unlike ancient belief that the world was square, the Bible declares that the earth is round. Isaiah wrote, He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And his people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. And of course there's a fierce debate about the word for circle, and does it have to mean circle, or might it mean something else? One of the oldest books of the Bible, the book of Job, how it's hung in space, the idea of it being suspended rather than being sat on something. Okay, And so being suspended, hung in space. And so you have a circle that's hung. You get the obvious uh, circular-type, globe-type shape. Other myths of the ancient world held that the earth rested in the back of Hercules or rested on pillars. I think the Quran says it rides on an elephant or a turtle. I forget, a turtle maybe. Um, anyway. Job says of God, he spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. And again, just like Isaiah, it's hung, it's suspended. Life is in the blood. Another secret of modern science, hidden for centuries, been announced over 3,000 years ago in the Bible. Moses wrote, Leviticus 17.11, For the life of a creature is in the blood. I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. The significance of blood, and we're still learning more about blood, but it's, um, it is curious because the word for life is the word for soul. And when, when you pour out your life, when you pour out your soul, um, you're, you're talking the same Hebrew, nefesh, or the same Greek, apsuke, that is in the blood. Okay, it's in the heimars, in the dom, uh, from the Hebrew. So, um, anyway, life is in the blood. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. It's why blood is the blood is the uh, thing that is shed, is the uh, thing that is sacrificed uh, to represent the the life, to represent the soul. All right, so we got to get a microphone, and uh, because we have a question over here. Well, this actually is a, a question about Jesus. About Jesus? Yes. So you were talking about um, life being in the blood, and we, we understand this metaphorically. 
Is there any literal aspects of, of a blood sacrifice from Jesus on the cross? Is there any sort of literal aspect or spiritual aspect to that? Well, he shed his blood. Yes. But when he said it is finished, he was not physically dead. And so that's why I believe it's best to understand both the spiritual death and the physical death. That he had authority to lay it down, he had authority to take it back up again. That was his spiritual life, his spiritual death, and his spiritual life. When, and so all of that was finished. And when he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit, he said that, again, being spiritually alive. Once again, he finished the work, he was spiritually alive, and then he died physically uh, in, in the, the final stage there, what he had to do on the cross. So... Uh, but I think that's vital. We don't want to confuse the metaphor. We've talked about this in Ephesians, the blood of Christ and the cross of Christ. And they're used so close together in that same context that it's useful. We can, we can view them as both metaphors referring to the same thing. And so we don't confuse, we don't give value to the hemoglobin, we don't give value to the lumber. We understand the cross of Christ is the work that he did while he was on the cross. And the blood of Christ refers to his sacrifice of his own spiritual life in accepting the wrath of God for our sins. And the, and the phrase blood of Christ is, is representative of the spiritual death, the work that he did while he was hanging on the cross. But there are, and, and this is, uh, I mean, it's my view, a lot of pastors hold this view, but it, it's a very sensitive topic for a whole lot of folks that get very uncomfortable if they think you're denigrating the blood of Christ. And they have a very much a uh, uh, an attachment to literal blood as opposed to the, the metaphoric understanding of what it symbolized, right? Oh. And, and I think that just fails in so many ways. But I get it, and I get why it's. I mean, our salvation is very personal to each one of us, and, I, and I'm going to try to be very gentle if I'm dealing with a brother or a sister that that has a not the best view on the blood of Christ. Okay, so Jehovah's Witnesses or, or others. I mean, I've, I've read such amazing things about how the blood of Jesus dripped down the cross and into the ground and it seeped through these cracks and it went down into this hidden cave that was underneath Mount, underneath Calvary, right? And, and, and wouldn't you know it, that was exactly the cave where Jeremiah had hidden the Ark of the Covenant in 586 B.C., before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. And so, um, in that cave then, is where the Ark of the Covenant had been hidden 600 years earlier, and the blood of Jesus dripped onto the mercy seat, onto the Ark of the Covenant, right? Yeah. What a miracle, right? Anyway, um, but that's, the, that's to the extent... Uh, that some people will be absolutely devoted to the hemoglobin, right? The the the, the blood cells, or whatever you want to call the the physical blood yeah. substance of of his uh, of his body. And yes, he bled. He sweat great drops of blood, and he was pierced, and he was scourged, and he bled, and he did have physical blood in his physical body. But th- that was no more efficacious than the blood of bulls, rams, and goats. When it comes to, you got to understand the significance, the reality behind the symbol. Okay? And the reality behind the symbol is the spiritual death of Jesus on the cross. Thank you. Right, Jer- uh, over to Josiah, please. So he said, uh, when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, that was, he was, uh, his spirit had already been reborn at that point. So there was this 
some spiritual resurrection that happened on the cross before his physical death? Or? We don't usually use the word resurrection connected with that. Resurrection okay. is typically limited to the body that okay. went into the tomb and came out on the third day. Uh, but he did lay down his life and he did take it up again. Okay. And so that was uh, when he accepted the sins being imputed to him is when he laid down his life and when he was spiritually separated from God the Father. And so uh, we talk about being body, soul, and spirit. For the first time ever, the, the human spirit of Jesus Christ was separated from, from God the Father. Because okay. remember, spiritual death, or any death, is a separation. How long was that separation? I believe it was the three hours of darkness. Okay. That there was three hours uh, in, the, in the light and then three hours in darkness, a total of six hours on the cross. Okay. Yeah. Great questions. The sea has paths and boundaries. Did you know this? The Bible also states well in advance of modern science that the sea has paths. Psalm 8.8 8, The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. And um, this is kind of interesting. The continental shelf that makes this possible is a fairly recent discovery of modern science. Um, everything, including ocean currents and other things like that. One of the the pioneers of studying ocean currents was um, an American uh, Navy uh, person, uh, Matthew Fontaine Maury, if you want to look that up in, on uh, Wikipedia. Matthew Fontaine Maury, M-A-U-R-Y. And, uh, and birthday of January 14th, this is how I know him. All right. And you can do read his history and all that. He, he uh, served in the American Navy. He served in the Confederate Navy. He had different views on slavery, which is probably why he's not so well known today. He's, uh, but he, he was convicted based on Psalm 8.8 that the sea has paths. And he knew that the sea had paths because, um, because the Bible said so. And so he started looking for what those paths might be. How do we understand those paths that the Bible says the sea has paths? And that's when he started studying um, ship, ca- uh, ship logs from hundreds of years gone by in the American naval records, the British naval records, and he started working through every captain's log he could and the daily records of their journeys in tracking ocean currents and, and tracking winds. And so he started to map out, created the first global index of ocean currents and predominant wind patterns and, uh, and demonstrated that, yes, you can, you can save days and weeks off of particular journeys if you, uh, if you understand what the, the trade winds are and what the currents are and, and things of that nature. So... Uh, very pioneering in the in the 1800s uh, related to that. So anyway, I'll get off that. I do like um, he was a remarkable person, even uh, flawed with some understandings. All right, the laws of sanitation. Again, this gets debated a lot. The uh, the clean versus unclean animal lists uh, are not. I think a lot of attention gets placed on them as being, ooh, look at this, it's, it's uh, nutritionally, and there's, there's value in these things. Also, uh, all of the washing rituals of the priesthood, um, they, they had spiritual messages behind them, messages of cleanliness, messages of purity, and they weren't really given to all the Jewish people, they were given to the priests in, the, in their cultic worship systems. Um, Remember, the Pharisees were the ones that just took it overboard and took, took the ritual for the priests and just made it apply to everybody. And, uh, and anyway, I think it's kind of weak 
to uh, say, oh, look, Leviticus is, is uh, way ahead of modern science for understanding hygiene and understanding, uh, I don't know, I, I just, I put less credence on this one than maybe I should. Testimony of the scrolls. All right, so now we're kind of getting past the prolegomena and all of the things about God's existence, and now we're kind of getting into the Bible chapters, the, the part of bibliology here, that, that there's just nothing like the Bible on planet Earth. Nothing in just the sheer number of manuscripts, the quality of the manuscripts, the, the, uh, the, there, there's nothing else from the ancient world that, that has more manuscript support than the Bible. We don't have any literal autographs that we're aware of, but we do have, we can reconstruct every autograph with a 99% certainty, and so there's just uh, a, a great testimony to God's preservation. And I think a lot of these we covered just in the last month anyway, so didn't really want to spend a ton of time on this. More accurately copied. Most of the variants are spelling things or, or just errors of the eye, things like that. Written by contemporaries and eyewitnesses. Don't believe the liberals when they try to tell you that you know it was written in the third century or the fourth century. They were all written during the lifetime of other by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Colin Hemmer talking about the the great historicity of the Book of Acts, one of the best scholars on the Book of Acts and its historicity. Likewise, uh, William Albright, who used to be pretty liberal on these things until he got into the realm of archaeology, the father of American archaeology, we might say, and uh, and he just is finding that everything has been validated through uh, the archaeology uh, troubles. <laughs> okay, famous for his role in launching the Death of God movement, John Robertson has. Uh, and he still, he didn't really change his theological views. He still died and went to heaven as a theological liberal. But his book on redating the New Testament, he, he could not accept the liberal dates. Because once he looked at the evidence, he came up with some of the earliest of all the dates related to, I mean, putting Matthew from four, as early as 40 A.D. I mean, that's, that's pretty serious, okay? And, uh, and, I, and I agree. I think there's, there's glimpses of Matthew that you can find in Paul's writings. And if there's glimpses of, of the uh, Olivet Discourse in, uh, in Paul's writings, then how early is Matthew? Okay, And I think that's, that's pretty telling. Anyway, I do recommend Robertson. It's not available in Logos, sadly enough. I don't know why. I've, we put in many requests for it. Logos does not have the rights to uh, John Robertson. So this is one that I still have the print copy in my library, and I refer to it. Because uh, I can't get it in, in Logos. Testimony of the scribes and um, the high standards that they had, the, the aspect of propheticity. Anyway, we, we touched on so much of this stuff very recently. I don't really. What the Bible says, God says. The Bible claims to be the Word of God. And, and, and honestly, if that's the testimony concerning itself, why are we not accepting that? Why do we not have the view of, we should have a bibliology uh, equal to what Jesus had. How did he relate to the scriptures? What did he understand? When he said, Gagrapti, he said, it is written. That was the end of the argument as far as he was concerned. Uh, that Satan had a temptation and Jesus came right back with, it is written. 
And, and that that statement, he made it three times, and he, he answered every temptation with a Deuteronomy quotation. I, I think that spells out for us his reverence for the Scriptures, his understanding of inspiration, his understanding of canonicity, his understanding of, of hermeneutics. When he handled the Scriptures, when he taught his own Bible class out of Isaiah 61, and he, he delineated that fulfilled versus unfulfilled as the breakdown for a biblical hermeneutic. All these things I find to be vital, particularly if we're commanded to be imitators of Christ. What kind of an imitator of Christ am I if I decide to throw out his hermeneutic and invent one of my own? Or become a, a liberal uh, theologian or something? Because he, he clearly was not. So um, I'm going to be as Christ-like as I can in my reverence for the text. Testimony of the supernatural. Nearly 300 predictions concerning Christ. And even critics agree that the latest of these come from some 200 years before his time. Many come from hundreds of years earlier. And this is the thing. You can, they, they try to tweak Daniel. They try to put Daniel in the Maccabean era uh, because it's just way too accurate. Uh, but even putting into the Maccabean era doesn't solve their problem because it still is predictive of things that followed the Maccabean era. Uh, focused on the Romans, for example, and other things. But, you know, look at all these prophecies. Born of a woman, born of a virgin. I mean, that's 700 years B.C. Um, the Daniel 9 about how he's cut off 483 years after the declaration to reconstruct the temple. I mean, this Daniel 9 prophecy is so, so, so staggering. Reuben told me he's doing a project right now where he's doing the 70 weeks of Daniel, and I, I'm just encouraging him in that because... And Harold Honer is uh, absolutely the, the finest source in the world on that. Chronological aspects to the life of Christ. If you don't have that in your library, it, uh, it's required. <laughs> okay. Um, the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Judah, the house of David, born in Bethlehem. Okay, That came from the prophet Micah, contemporary with Isaiah. Anointed by the Holy Spirit, heralded by the messenger of the Lord, performer of miracles, cleanser of the temple, rejected by the Jews. Sufferer of humiliating death. And then all the details of that. Piercing his hands and his feet. You know, to come in Psalm 22 a thousand years before the event is extraordinary. Not only before the event, but even before the invention of crucifixion. How about that? Okay, because it wasn't even a known execution method at the time that Psalm 22 was written. Some folks credit the Persians for that, and then the Romans kind of refined it and uh, brought it to the to the uh, pinnacle of achievement there. Crucified with sinners, praying for his persecutors, piercing his side, burial in a rich man's tomb, casting lots for his garment. I mean, seriously, is this a whole chain of lucky guesses, or is the does the prophecy of Scripture testify to its divine origin? I think any fair consideration would would accept that. Being raised from the dead. How many times was that predicted? In Psalm 2 and Psalm 16. Ascended into heaven, Psalm 68. Seated at the right hand of God, Psalm 110. So it's kind of fun to go through a life of Christ outline and then instead of teaching it from the Gospels, teach it from the Old Testament. <laughs> and quite a bit of the life of Christ you can, you can teach from the Old Testament even if we didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. right? Because we have the prophecies of what Jesus would accomplish. This next section was kind of curious, you know, and, and maybe 
how much of this is going to be so dated now that in another 20 years that people are going to say, who's, who's Gene Dixon or some of these other illustrations that he uses. Um, this too, this is Prophecy is Proof of the Bible. It's an article in the Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics. Okay? And it is available in Logos, so you can read the entire thing there if you want to get the longer version of what this short paragraph is dealing with here. But the People's Almanac in 1976 decided, hey, let's, uh, let's create a chart. Let's, let's diagram all the top psychics of our culture. And what they found out was, shock, they're usually wrong. Okay? They are wrong 92% of the time. I mean, if that's your track record, why does anybody even listen to you? So, uh, Jeannie Dixon, usually wrong, and her biographer, Ruth Montgomery, admits that she made false prophecies, predicted that Red China would plunge the world into war over Kwamoy and Matsu in October of 1958. She thought the labor leader, Walter Ruther, would actively seek the presidency in 1964. In 1968, she assured us that Jacqueline Kennedy was not considering marriage, and the next day, Mrs. Kennedy wed Aristotle Onassis. <laughs> I mean, okay. World War III will start in 1954. The Vietnam War would end in 1966. Castro would be banished from Cuba in 1970. What, who pays attention to this person? Okay? And after you're wrong so many times, we, we're, we're laughing about it, but consider all of the, the global warming scares we've been having. And before that was the, the global cooling scares that we were being given and all of the scares about the population bomb and all the other things. And just, you get these fearmongers out there and they like to pronounce these things and then no one ever holds them accountable for everything they got wrong. Anyway, so that's kind of a fun section there. The Bible, however, yeah, most of us fit in that. And then we're getting down here to Nostradamus. Contrary to popular belief, he was often wrong when specific. He was usually vague and never predicted some of the things attributed to him. For example, he never predicted either the place or the year of a great California earthquake. The date later added did not come to pass. Most of his famous predictions, the rise of Hitler, are completely misplaced. He mentioned Hister, a place, not Hitler, a person. So, that's another article there. It's Nostradamus. In, uh, not the Nag Hammadi Gospels, but Nostradamus in uh, the Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics. That is a bad tag. I'm going to have to, uh, it should link to there. So I will report that as a typo and Logos can fix it. All right. You guys know you can do that, right? Logos has millions of proofreaders all over the world. And when you find an error, like how this is mistagged, you can uh, come down here and report typo. And let Logos know that the end should be in, but then the link needs to go to Nostradamus and not the Nag Hammadi Library. Submit and it's gone. All right, and they've got teams of people that fix these things in Bellingham, Washington. All right. Supernatural confirmations in the Bible and all the miracle workers and the testimony that God gave. I mean, goodness. Do you think Moses was a servant of God or not? 
And, uh, you know, was the Red Sea your first clue or were there other clues before that? And then other miracles and all these things. Same thing with Jesus. All those signs. Even his critics said, you've got to be from God because you've done all these things. John 3, 2. The signs of an apostle were performed, of a true apostle, were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. We did see a verse this morning that Satan will sometimes have false signs and wonders. That's why you compare the miracles with the message, and when they're both on track, then you understand that this is somebody God has sent. Of course, Muhammad did no miracles, and the Quran says so. Surah 637. Why is not a sign sent down to him from his Lord? Say, Allah hath certainly power to send down a sign, but most of them understand it not. Okay. Muhammad did no miracles. Testimony of the structure of the Bible. And, uh, again, written over 1,600 years by 40 different authors in three different languages, um, hundreds of different topics, different literary styles, Authors of different occupations. There could be no collusion between all these authors, most of whom they didn't even know each other, centuries apart. Some try to say, oh, well, you know, the later authors could have included earlier material and they did their best to keep everything consistent, but that doesn't solve many of these issues here as well. Even if every author of Scripture possessed every other book before he wrote his own, there is still a unity of Scripture that transcends normal human ability. You would have to assume, contrary to fact, that every author of Scripture was an incredible literary genius who saw both the broader unity and plan of Scripture and just how his piece was to play a part in it so that the unforeseen end would come out of it even though he could not foresee it himself. Seriously? Okay? It's actually easier to believe that, that God wrote it. <laughs> okay? A single superintending mind behind the whole thing. Devised the plot and the plan and how it would unfold and eventuate from the beginning. And, and seriously, this is God's proof of who he is. And he taunts the fallen angels in this. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. That's Isaiah 46.10. And you read the verses that lead up to that. You, uh, you see that he's chewing them out. He's rebuking. He says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. That is a direct criticism of Halil ben Shachar, the liar, Satan, right? Lucifer, who said, I will be like the Most High God. And God says, oh, no, you're not. I am the Lord God. There is none, none other, no one like me. And part of that proof is declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done. Fallen angels cannot prophesy. They are creatures of time like we're creatures of time. The best they can do is try to say things and then centuries later try to make good on what they promised to do and God will typically thwart that anyway because they're not God. And I find that to be almost um, amusing. He who sits in the heavens laughs, I'm sure. Suppose a family medical advisor was composed by 40 doctors over 1,500 years in different languages on hundreds of different medical topics. Well, what was medicine like 1,500 years ago? So you get one author that's talking about leeches, and you get another doctor that's talking about antibiotics, and you get another doctor talking about, I mean, imagine, how would they even relate to each other? What kind of unity would it have? 
He had the bio with greater diversity as the world's number one bestseller. Sought out by countless millions as the solution to humankind's spiritual maladies. Alone, of all the books known to humankind, it needs deity to account for its amazing unity in the midst of its beautiful diversity. The Bible itself is evidence that deity exists. Yeah. And then the stones. This is why it's going to be kind of fun that uh, Randy Price is the keynote speaker for this year's Schaefer Conference because he's been a he's been a, an archaeologist for years and years and years, one of the the foremost authorities on the Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the great authorities on uh, Israeli uh, archaeology. No archaeological find has ever refuted a biblical claim. We stand by that. There's never been an archaeological find that has disproved a biblical claim. Thousands of finds have confirmed, in general and in detail, the biblical picture. And so what we do find is consistent with, is confirmatory, may not be proof, but it's certainly consistent with, and it's definitely not disproof of anything in the Bible. No archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. And so this is Nelson Gluck in uh, R.D. Gluck, Rivers in the Desert. That's what the R.D. stands for. All right. William Albright again. Archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Old Testament tradition. Archaeological confirmations have spanned the creation record, the Ebla tablets, including Noah's Flood, the Tower of Babel, patriarchal history, Sodom and Gomorrah, the fall of Jericho, King David, and the Assyrian captivity. And, and it's almost laughable if it wasn't so sad, but I think the, the skeptics, the critics, the God-haters, they, um, they just thrive in, in doubting everything. There wasn't really a, a real King David, right, according to them. But then we keep finding these archaeological discoveries where a house of David is, is a thing. Okay? All right. And, and these things keep getting... Petrovich, Daniel Petrovich got a, a, a great... Uh, not Daniel, Douglas Petrovich has a great uh, series of uh, YouTube videos where he was uh, doing these his Genesis history uh, features. And he's got entries for David's palace, for Solomon's palace, for uh, the historicity of, of uh, these things in Jerusalem. It's, it's marvelous. Tower of Babel. Anyway, Douglas Petrovich, if you want to look him up. The Book of Acts, hundreds of archaeological confirmations. Noted Roman historian A.N. Sherwin-White. This guy is preeminent in Roman studies. And he has nothing but praise for Luke in uh, the Gospel of Luke and Acts. The confirmation of historicity is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject its basic historicity, even in matters of detail, must now appear absurd. Roman historians have long taken it for granted. That's, that's kind of telling right there. You've got these God-hating Bible skeptics, but legitimate, long-term, lifelong, professional Roman historians have always valued the book of Acts as being excellent history of the Roman, of the first century Roman Empire. William Ramsey, I like his book. I actually prefer Ramsey to, I know Warren Dowd is a huge, huge fan of Coney Barrenhausen, and so a lot of the Grace Notes material uses Coney Barrenhausen. Um, I, I prefer, I don't know, I've just for years I've liked William Ramsey, and, uh, which is available in Lagos. 
It's very small print. <laughs> anyway, St. Paul, the Traveler, and the Roman Citizen. That's S-P-T-R-C. Again, I, I despise these abbreviations for book names. St. Paul, the Traveler, and the Roman Citizen. Okay? Colin Hemmer, the Book of Acts and the Setting of Hellenistic History. I'm sure that's B-A-S-H-H. Bash. Um, and we talked about this in chapter 26. I actually went through, he had like 40 or 50 different lines of evidence where Acts is just awesome history. And, uh, and you can get lost in that. Yamauchi. Who's Yamauchi? Edwin Yamauchi. The Stones and the Scriptures. All right. So that's the Yamauchi SS. Then the testimony of the Savior. I mean, as if we don't have enough. Okay? And particularly, okay, so the critic will reject anything Jesus says because it's, uh, it's not reliable. Or, it's just crazy. Well, of course you trust Jesus because you claim Him as your Savior. But, okay, why don't you trust Jesus? Why, why do you insist that He's not a reliable source? Throw it right back at Him. Isn't he in a position to know these things? If he, if he is who he claimed to be, then he is the, the creator God of the universe. And I think he knows that what he's talking about. Claimed to be the Son of God, it was confirmed by acts of God. He says the Bible is the Word of God. Okay, I'm good with that. The Bible is either the Word of God or Jesus is not the Son of God. You can't have one and not the other. If Jesus is the Son of God that he was supernaturally confirmed to be, then the Bible is the Word of God, because he said so. The Bible confirms him, and he confirms the Bible. What a great uh, double witness there. So, yeah. And all these things, every area that the liberals just like to camp on, and Jesus says, nope, that's not how it, not how it was. Jesus says Daniel was a prophet, not a mere historian. Called him Daniel the prophet. No problem with a with a fifth century date of, of Daniel, sixth century date of Daniel B.C. and uh, describing the uh, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and all the the warfare there of Daniel chapter eleven. That's not an issue. God created a literal Adam and Eve. I'm okay with that because Jesus talked about them. Jonah was literally swallowed by a literal fish. Jesus mentioned it. The world was actually destroyed by a flood. Jesus mentioned it. There was one prophet Isaiah, not two, Deutero or Trito Isaiah. One prophet Isaiah. And I love the fact that in um, between Luke and Mark, you have quotations from both of the supposed parts of, of the two different Isaiahs, and Jesus cited Isaiah for both of them. He promised the New Testament would be the Word of God. He said the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance all these things. And so we have a reliable Old Testament, a reliable New Testament. We have a complete canon of Scripture. The testimony of the saved. I like this one, but I'm also... Um, I don't camp on it as heavily as some people do because it is an argument. It's a subjective argument. It's an argument from experience. It's an argument of how the Word of God has changed my life. And, and you know, the, the Mormons will tell you something similar about how much their Mormonism means to them and, and what, how it's made them better people and, and things like that. But the life-transforming power of the Bible is widely known. 
Like I say, if that's all we have, if this was our only piece of evidence, we'd be on shaky ground. I don't mind adding this to the other 20 lines of argument that we have. But yeah, how does Saul of Tarsus go from a hate, hater and a persecutor to a champion apostle? I mean, how does that happen? Millions of people worldwide, from Stone Age pagans to modern day science, modern age scientists, testify to the power of the Word of God to make them children of God. Anyway, it is it, it is a line. It's not our only line, and and I like I said, I don't really hyper uh, emphasize that. The debate about how Christianity spread versus how Islam spread. And, uh, yeah, I accept that. That's valid. Christianity did not spread by the sword, not for the first, the foundation centuries, okay? Of course, I'll bring up the Crusades. William Paley, if you want to read more on this. We've had Paley mentioned several times in this volume. All right. Well, this has gone by pretty quickly. Let's read this, and then I'll take your questions. Uh, Here's Paley. For what are we comparing a Galilean peasant accompanied by a few fishermen with a conqueror at the head of his army? I mean, there's a contrast for you. He was a bandit. He was a bandit chieftain. And then, uh, you know, had an army behind him, and out they went. We compare Jesus without force, without power, without support, without one external circumstance of attraction or influence. Remember the kenosis? He laid aside his privileges. Okay? Prevailing against the prejudices, the learning, the hierarchy of his country, against the ancient religious opinions, the pompous religious rites, the philosophy, the wisdom, the authority of the Roman Empire, in the most polished and enlightened period of its existence. That's on the one hand. With Muhammad making his way among Arabs, collecting followers in the midst of conquests and triumphs, in the darkest ages in countries of the world, and when success in arms not only operated by that command of men's wills and persons which attend prosperous undertakings, but was considered as a sure testimony of divine approbation, that multitudes persuaded by this argument should join the train of a victorious chief, and still greater multitudes should without any argument bow down before irresistible power, is a conduct in which we cannot see much to surprise us in which we can see nothing that resembles the causes by which the establishment of Christianity was affected. So, there you have that. And then there's a footnote there with Muslim answers to that. But Anyway, that is E.C. William Paley, Evidences of Christianity. That's what the E.C. stands for. Page 257. All right, this is how he wraps it up. The Bible is the only known book in the world that both claims to be and proves to be the Word of God. And I, and I don't mind. I mean, just on a purely academic basis, if we believe in a theistic universe, if we believe in a monotheistic universe, then and, 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 and that there's a God who's capable of revealing himself, then essentially we can boil it down to three options, right? It's either the Bible, it's the Quran, or it's... Uh, I guess maybe we'd say the Book of Mormon or whatever. Look at look at other texts. You can't look at Hindu because that's not monotheistic. So you can't really consider the Vedas as a as a self revelation of a monotheistic god. But uh, if you if you philosophically view that this is a monotheistic universe with a communicative divine being, then uh, 
then uh, you know we have a very short list of potential candidates for the Word of God, and it's not it's not difficult to to show that the Bible is far and away beyond anything else that uh, might try to have a similar claim. So, all of the evidence, all of the testimony, all of the claims, the um, testimony of science, of the scrolls, of the scribes, of the supernatural, of the structure, of the stones, of the Savior, of the Spirit. Oh, I see what he did there. A whole bunch of S's. Science, scrolls, scribes, supernatural, structure, stones, Savior, Spirit, <coughs> the saved, Ah, oh, see, this is why this is why Geisler was such an author, and I couldn't I couldn't write something like that. That's that's great. Uh, those combined testimonies confirm that the Bible is what it claims to be—the divinely inspired, infallible, and inerrant Word of God. And and when you reject what the Bible claims to be, then you're on board the liberal agenda, is what you are. Okay, say, oh, the Bible is not the Word of God; it's just oral traditions accumulated through the years that eventually found written form by people that try to hold on to the power that they had found themselves with. Okay? The Exodus didn't really happen. It was just invented. And it invented mythology to give the Jewish people some kind of divine sanction to kick out the, the, the poor Palestinians and, and claim the land. Okay? Things like that. Um, no, the Bible is what it claims to be. And, and, and sometimes, I don't know, I feel ornery sometimes. I, um, especially if there's, if there's liberals and their insanity that they put on paper. You know, and, and then, am I not free to ridicule their writings like they're free to ridicule the, the scriptures? You know, can I pick up a book by, um, oh, pick your favorite liberal, whatever, and, and instead of accepting it as a theological work, you know, just mock it and laugh at it and reject it and say, oh no, this is a, this is a Lithuanian cookbook here. I, I don't want to have anything to do with this. I mean, who would do such a thing? Is that legitimate? Is that intellectually honest or fair or right? But they do it all the time. They reject the Bible and, and they do not accept what the Bible itself claims to be. Does that make sense? All right. I don't know where Lithuanian cookbook came from, but that's... No. My uh, apologies to any people that are very fond of Lithuanian cuisine, if, if that's a thing that, that's dear to you. Okay, I'm ready for some questions. We are early today, but I don't mind if... Push the button until the green light comes on. There you go. Hello. hello. Um, so, uh, can God audibly speak to us today, and can Jesus appear to us today without breaking the canon of Scripture? Yes and yes. Huh? Yes and yes. God can, oh, okay. because obviously if he did it once, he can do it again. Um, but, I mean, it's like he can heal today, even though there aren't believers given the spiritual gift of healing. He can perform whatever miracle he chooses, even though there aren't believers given the spiritual gift of miracles. Um, he can. My question is, why would he? And uh, on what basis... On what basis would he do so? Yes, he can do so, but okay. if he has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness, and if we accept that the canon of Scripture is sufficient okay. for any test of, of, of our spiritual life, why would he show up and audibly speak to, uh, to somebody today? 
That's that's uh, that's my follow-up question to that. Does that make sense? A question about the question. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, all right. So so who who's asking the question? and What are they claiming? The people claim that they heard God audibly. Okay. So and they told him to do something. They told him to do something. Yeah. Or they he appeared to me in yeah. physical form. I've heard arguments for and against. You know, it's like okay, well. Right. There are guys who I think at Wayside say, no, he can't do that. He won't do that. Maybe he said he won't, what you just said. Right. Uh, but The sufficiency or, of scriptures makes it unnecessary, yeah. I think. And so, then, okay, and kind of, well, he didn't do that. Mm-hmm. It was like, okay, wait a minute, now you're he just implied that that was the devil. Or well, brain. So, now this is something else. I, I, I can be very patient and gentle, and I'm going to be... Uh, I'm going to be careful with a, a brother or sister, especially if I think they're a weaker brother or they're younger. Um, I think it is legitimate to have convictions, faith convictions. I think it can be very legitimate if, if you know, you've been, you've been praying over something, you've been wrestling over a decision, you've been reading the scriptures, and then you're engaged in, the, in all of the process for seeking the will of God, and then um, you're in church and in and, and a... And a the pastor's message just really speaks to you, right? It just all of a sudden it's like, man, I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a missionary in Congo. I mean, just whatever it is, okay? And and so because you've been praying for it, you've been leading up to it. Then when you reach that faith conviction, Romans 14 deals with faith convictions, and it is so clear that you you can honestly say, man, the, the Lord spoke to me today, the Holy Spirit spoke to me today, but we use it idiomatically because He spoke to me through. A Bible class, through a pastor's message, through a prayer meeting, through it wasn't a visible appearance of a of a shining spirit of Jesus who sat down next to me on the on the school bus and who said, you know, no, that's not how he works. Okay, does that make sense? I'm hoping that the so I I can be very patient to somebody who says, you know, the Lord really spoke to me and I, I think sure. I think I might go into ministry. I might have a spiritual like, gift. I'm just saying though, this is God. I heard, I saw, mm-hmm. physically appeared to me. This is not an illusion. This is not illumination like you're speaking of. It's like a hallucination. He, or he, a... he actually came in physical form uh-huh. and stood before me and told me that I needed to divorce my wife. No, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> he told me in audible language, yes. uh, you know, go or do something. I think you were joking earlier, but I heard do, he can do these he things. He can. He can. But he won't. I don't Are believe you, he will. You don't believe he will. I don't believe he will. Right. I don't so believe with a completed canon he has any need to. And there are no more apostles. The last one called as an apostle is Apostle Paul. Then the personal appearance of Jesus Christ hasn't happened the, since the Apostle Paul. And you're basing that because it, the sufficiency uh-huh. closed. And this would add to canon? If an audible voice, it would deny the sufficiency of scriptures. It would deny. So, oh, that wasn't enough. You needed a, you needed a, a prophetic word. You needed a visit from a, a. Uh, and you know, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. It does not bother me. At, I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all that that such a thing might be happening. In that regard. Yeah. All right, Jeremiah, you need the microphone. Okay, so I guess I'll sit here for a sec. Um, <clears throat> so, 
Kind of a follow-up question to that, um, because, you know, you'll hear, like, missionary stories where they observe a miracle. Like, I've heard mm-hmm. uh, my grandparents are missionaries, and they've heard secondhand of, like, uh, in Burma, there would be, like, um, families that were terrified to stay in their own houses because they could hear their dead grandparents, which, mm-hmm. you know, I personally would think would be, like, demons imitating their dead grandparents mm-hmm. is, is a possibility, at least. And then I've heard other stories, um, and this isn't appearances of God per se, but I've also heard stories of missionaries that knew that there were uh, tribal peoples coming to kill them, mm-hmm. and they get to the house and they see like a, a, a ring of angels a, a surrounding ring of, them in the, yeah, surrounding uh-huh. the house, things like that. So what's your, um, I've also heard stories of like people that possibly entertain angels, yep. talk to people, and then other people around them think they're crazy because it looks like they're talking to nobody. Yeah, I have no issue with uh, guardian angels or protective functions of angels or, or miracles as such. Um, and and in on the mission field, I think it's it's actually much more common than it is in uh, in America. I think um, that, so. That's not even unbiblical. That's that's very biblical. And and hosting angels without knowing and things like that. Uh, my issue is with the the visions that are equated as um, calls, apostolic calls, and the commissions to do because. You know, if God wants everything to be confirmed by two or three witnesses, well, then why are you telling me something that that's different from Joseph Smith, right? I mean, it's just, yeah. so you, God spoke to you, okay? And then, again, there's an ordinary part of me that wants to say, yeah, God spoke to me, too. He told me uh, not to listen to that voice you were listening to, right? <laughs> or God spoke to me and told me to punch you in the nose, okay? Um, things like that. And, and you can't tell me he didn't if, if you're not going to let me tell you he didn't, right? okay? And so it just all of a sudden becomes subjective in every application. So, um, in, in 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 that, yeah, right. Because there's um, too many cult leaders that start off with that premise of "Oh, God spoke totally. to me. Yeah, yeah. I'm the new prophet" type of deal. You know, so I'm going to build a compound and get a bunch of guns and marry a bunch of women and yeah, yeah, like the Branch Davidians or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay, let's get the microphone over here. To uh, I'm okay with the compound and the guns. Uh, so, yeah, so I think it's uh, it's interesting, like your question, um, and so to kind of confirm it as well. Well, I know the answer, and I I, I concur with with Pastor, but you know, for somebody to like me to say no, that God can't speak to other people like that. Well, who are you, Emilio? You know, like you're growing, you're you 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 know who. Who are you? Have you given, like, your whole life to the Word of God? But somebody like Pastor Bob, you know, his whole life is revolves around the, the, the Word of God and just completely dedicated. I'm sure he's got enough faith in God. So, you know, I've never heard Pastor, um, the, the Colonel Robert Dean, uh, say that, that God spoke to him, you know, audibly, or Robert McLaughlin, who also gave his whole life to the Word of God, and then Pastor Bob, you know, mm-hmm. pretty much more than 30 years just, just you know, studying the Word of God, and his whole life reflects that, and have you ever heard the Word of God, uh, God, I'm sorry, have you ever heard God speak to you audibly? Not in an audible voice to my earthly Eardrums. It yeah, would be I probably would have misheard him anyway. I got terrible hearing. <laughs> It'd be pretty easy to to hear him like that, you know, because 
I mean, my wife and I made a uh, a decision to come over here, and it's months and months. Mm-hmm. Before even that, it was years of prayer. Like, God, yep. I, I want face-to-face teaching. Years and years of prayer. I, I can't do this, you know, studying online anymore. And right. even even crying, like, frustration. Like, oh, God, I just, you know, I, I can't do this anymore. And, and then even when, when we came here and... And I saw my wife and kid, and it was kind of like confirmed from the first few hours. It was like, this is the place to be. We put it in prayer and prayer and prayer. And that's God, how the Spirit leads. And God Absolutely. never said, yes, it's uh, mm-hmm. Austin Bible Church. But <laughs> but things led up to that right. where I had to take a leap of faith and say, I really think this is where we need to go. Mm-hmm. And, and and then and then because of our... And, and, and then the question will be, why? You know, so my reason was... Because I want to get to know God because I know this is going to help us grow. And mm-hmm. not, not because, uh, you know, well, there's a house over here that is, uh, they reduced it $40,000 and it's a great deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I like it. I like it a lot. Yes, sir. So, um, I guess kind of a follow-up question. Do you think... Uh, Billy, of what Amelia says, do you think another reason why God doesn't like audibly speak to us like He did to Moses is partially testing our faith? And is, is, is there some element to life in the church age and why God doesn't reveal no, even in, like even that in the Old Testament, it was rare, and and miracles are miracles for a reason. Is because they don't normally happen; they're not normal. And so, an audible voice from the Lord, a burning bush, for example. If you have a burning bush, put it out. Okay, or he can help you. He had firefighting experience. So if if, yeah, Um, the the even in Old Testament times, you would have just a few generations like Moses and Joshua. You get a back-to-back generation there with divine revelation and messages, and then you get to Elijah and Elisha, or you get to David and Solomon. You get to generally when when the Holy Spirit was inspiring new scripture. Or, or when he was audibly speaking and making vision appearances to different prophets, it was not normal, and so and that was for their stewardship. Then you come to our stewardship, where it begins on the day of Pentecost, and you have a foundation that's laid by the apostles and prophets, and the foundation can't be being laid two thousand years later. When when does the foundation stop? A foundation has to stop to put a structure on it. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, since we, since the foundation was laid by the apostles and prophets, I, I see no reason for additional visionary experiences and divine revelation or canonicity or anything beyond the death of the apostle John. Basically, I mean, the argument I've heard for sensationalism is that uh-huh. if miracles continue, then it takes away from the specialness of the of the of the revelation of God. That's the argument, sort of. If they are continuing, right, right, then then. You know, okay, we're saying that the 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 number and the amount of the supernatural miracle in you know in number and density okay. validifies the 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 revelation. So, if we say that it continues, then it takes away from the specialness of the you know of the density of the suspension of natural natural laws. Verifying right. the revelation of God, the new revelation of God. That's where I heard. That's okay, I heard. yeah, and and I was uh, yeah. Okay, it takes away from it, but it also contradicts because the Bible itself says that tongues will cease. The Bible itself says that prophecy will be done away. The Bible itself says, you know, in in First Corinthians fourteen, that the, the foundation gifts 
are being done away. And only those gifts, not all gifts, only those, those gifts. The other gifts continue on for the totality of the church age. So as there are a subset of gifts that are abolished, and then a larger, about half-half, as 11 and 9, that are abolished versus abiding forever for the totality of the church age. And that's, uh, that's the answer on that. Yes, sir. So I guess kind of wrapping, uh, I guess kind of another little question here, following that up. Um, We're going to be here till midnight. I, like I know, no, I know. It's just, my, my, I guess my question is, does it actually detract from the specialness of, of Christianity by not having all these miracles, or is the, what's special about the Christian faith already right there in that Bible? Oh, totally, yeah, yeah. I would say um, we don't have a burning bush because we don't need a burning bush. We have the permanent indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. We have the mind of Christ. We have the complete canon of Scripture. And so um, the, the things that were the in part, in part, was, was a way to uh, improvise over less than ideal circumstances. But now that we have the complete canon, we don't have to improvise anymore. And that's, uh, that's a, a paraphrase of First Corinthians 13 and 14. Yeah. All right. Last call. No, I'm teasing. We've got time. Yes. Um, is there any... I'm, I'm sure it, I'm sure the answer is yes. I just want to confirm. Is there any... Is there people that die after the age of accountability without hearing the gospel? And yeah. So <laughs> sin and salvation. We'll talk about... What about the lost? What about the, the unreached people groups? You know, you got a, a pygmy in Africa somewhere that, that never sees a, a Bible and never hears the gospel kind of a thing. And so, yeah, we will be addressing that eh, as far as... And then what about the Western Hemisphere before Columbus? How unfair was God that he couldn't, uh, he couldn't send an angel across the ocean to give a gospel to somebody? Well, I guess I'll wait six months for that. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. No, we will, we will answer that. It's not an issue. And the skeptics who bring it up say, okay, you know, we have answers for that. It's not. Uh, it's not a defeater. Okay, Josiah. I guess I can't remember where I've heard this, but like, you know, we were talking about the cessation of the of the gift of tongues. Uh-huh. But does that mean that people cannot speak in tongues after, like, even without having that gift? Because I've I've heard stories. I can't remember where people like talking to someone and like giving the gospel, and then then someone came up from afterwards and were like, "Oh, how did how do you? I didn't know you spoke that language or something like that." Okay. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. What? I didn't know. Like that, this person was speaking a different language. Sure, uh, but I can't remember where I've heard heard this. But like, is that like a? I guess yeah. So it would be sense? like a, a healing or a miracle or something else that happens uh, on a rare occasion. Uh, but since 70 A.D., no one has received that as a spiritual gift. I think yeah. the the best understanding of cessationism. It's not like. All the people that had the gift of tongues just uh, had their subscription unrenewed or, or they lost their batteries or you know, all of a sudden they, they stopped having a gift anymore. Uh, I think there came a point that the Holy Spirit stopped assigning that as a gift at the salvation that the different people were getting saved. And so uh, when, when they physically died, then that giftedness died out. The only ones that I think were um, a little bit different than that are the gifts of healing because the gifts of healing grammatically are described in different ways. And the gifts of healing, I think, were uh, always intended to be of a of a diminishing capacity. And so, the Apostle Paul healed all kinds of people, but by the time he's writing First Timothy, he had to leave Trophimus sick in 
in Miletus and, and things like that. So uh, he told Timothy to drink a little wine for his frequent stomach ailments because even the Apostle Paul was no longer doing any healings from that moment forward. Yeah. So uh, we are presently out of the notebooks. Uh, you can get them on the website. You can get the basic doctrinal studies PDF off the church website. But otherwise, um, Carol said she's going to get some more notebooks printed up because the hallway is empty right now on the basic doctrinal studies notebook. But that's where charismatology is in there with uh, spiritual gifts. And then uh, the First Corinthians notebook and, and those MP3s really go through. We spent weeks and weeks and weeks on um, tongues will cease. And, and prophecy and knowledge will be done away. And uh, the difference between done away and cease. And, uh, and that whole, uh, the, 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 the passage is beautiful. It's almost like poetry in the, in the grammatical structure of that passage. And, uh, and I, I encourage anybody to, to go through that if there's any unresolved question on cessationism. I also like to tweak some people when, I, when they tell me they're not a cessationist. I say, yeah, you are. Because it says tongues will cease. Isn't that in your Bible? He goes, well, yeah, it's in my Bible, so there you go. You're a cessationist. Well, they're going to cease in the future when Jesus comes at, at Second Advent. Oh, okay. So you are a, sensation, a cessationist. Just like me, we're just disputing the timing of the, of the event. Okay? So they are cessationists, even if they tell me they're not. And, and like the people that say they're not dispensational, I say, yeah, you are. You're a dispensationalist. Did you bring a goat to sacrifice this morning? You know, or do you think the animal ritual was fulfilled in Christ? Okay, and, and if you quit using dispensationalism as a as a scare scare word, then uh, you'll start to realize that, that you're you're also one too. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, everybody. Good to have you with us. Let's uh, pray, and then um, we're actually leaving twelve minutes early. Is that okay? Twelve minutes. Here I am compromising on Super Bowl Sunday. All right. All right, let me pray. All right. Yeah. All right. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace and faithfulness. Give you the praise and glory. For the past 20 weeks, Father, I want to just thank you that you, you allowed us to go through this material. And uh, we're looking forward to Volumes 2, 3, and 4. Um, more urgently, Father, we're looking forward to dispensationalism starting next week. So in all these things... Thank you for these students. Thank you for their diligence. I give you the praise and glory in Christ's name. Amen. All right. And no quiz for this week.